0: We hope you find these podcasts informative, and as always, we welcome your comments and suggestions. Good day and welcome to episode 165 of our Digital Thread podcast series. Today, I'm pleased to be joined by Jamshed Dubash, CEO of VASPAR Strategies, a consulting company focused on sales and marketing and go-to-market strategic planning for companies in the IoT, M2M, and RFID space. Jamshed is a global executive with a passion to create business opportunities in the pharmaceutical and life cycles, retail and CPG, manufacturing, transportation, and logistic marketing spaces by integrating IoT edge sensors, big data, and advanced analytics to help companies increase operational efficiencies and reduce costs. He started his IoT leadership journey at Procter & Gamble, where he led their RFID efforts at Gillette. In the famous RFID pilots with Walmart, he went on to executive leadership roles at pioneering IoT and RFID companies, including Mojix, Senaya, Deep Magic, and most recently Tracelink. Jamshed, welcome to our Digital Thread podcast.
1: Ken, thank you so much. So excited to be here. Can't say how impressed I am with all the work you and the Momenta team are doing, building this ecosystem that we have been involved with for the last uh, almost two decades now. So. Thank you, and, and I look forward to this opportunity.
0: Thank you for the kind words, but given that I just read a bio that almost took me out of breath, I should be thanking you for all of the pioneering work that you've done. And it's, uh, it's actually beautiful in terms of going back to what I consider to be really one of those kind of seminal technology events, the RFID work that was done at the AutoID Consortium way back when. So. We're going to jump into that and really talk about moving fast forward, how all of the results of that journey have really come out. So first, though, I always like to discuss one's digital thread. In other words, the one or more thematic threads that define their digital industry journey. What's your digital thread?
1: Yeah, love the question, Ken. You know, you talked about all the different companies I've been involved with. So just looking back at my career, I think there's probably three threads that that stick out to me. The first and early part of my career was all about semiconductors. You know, it was manufacturing and it was bunny suit and all, right? So I was in the fab and involved in all of those things. Did some really interesting work there. My first exposure to consumer type technology, we did the first PDA with HP and a small company called Arm that you might have heard of. That was, I'd say, my first theme. The second one that sort of built on top of that is what we were just talking about, which is RFID. And you talked about the Auto IT center Center, EPC, Global, and GS1. You know, these are big entities that were trying to do big things and are trying to do big things. So that whole RFID journey it was with Gillette and Procter & Gamble and then Mojix, like you mentioned. So I'd say that's the second theme. And then the third is IoT. And it sort of builds, I think each of these have built on top of each other. IoT, of course, much broader than just RFID. And in that sense, the time I spent with Sanaya with real-time visibility type solutions and Deep Magic, which was unattended retail, these are sort of the IoT type solutions.
0: Wow, three powerful ones. And you're absolutely right. I do think they build on each other in terms of, call it a, almost a full stack, if you will, of technologies and thus capabilities you provide. So you and I first met back when you were running the groundbreaking automatic ID efforts between Gillette and RFID. This was part of the MIT Auto ID Center at the time, which included membership of most major retailers and consumer packaged goods suppliers. I was part of it on behalf of the Philip Morris Industries way back when. So tell us a bit about the effort and your accomplishments leading particularly this pilot.
1: Yeah, <laughs> these are good old days. I think some of us used to call it the gin and tonic journey that we were on. Uh, we, we traveled all <laughs> over the place. We had lots of great gin and tonics and talked about how we were going to change the world. I think the vision was beautiful and it was a little ahead of its time. And, but the Auto ID Center, you know, our, our friend, our common friend, Sanjay Sarma, who's I think still uh, very actively involved in the industry, it was sort of the guiding light, if you will, around this whole initiative. And it really fit very well for Gillette. Gillette, the most perfect product portfolio, if you will. Had Oral-B, Gillette, and Braun were sort of the major product categories. Uh, these were all very high-value products. Many of them had very long shelf lives. They were small form factor, high resale values. Lots of things that made for the good RFID implementation, if you will. So Gillette was all in on this effort, and what better way to get closer to the largest retailer in the world than to work with them on what they were mandating, and obviously the largest retailer here at Walmart and their mandate back then. So there was a lot of learning, a lot of things we did right, a lot of things we did wrong, and we sort of built but those foundational use cases and things we talked about back then, I think, are still very relevant to
0: today. Yeah, in fact, talking about things that you did write, those use cases, clearly, you guys produced really groundbreaking business cases that measured the impact of RFID on supply chain challenges. I remember out-of-stock particularly was one of the big ones. But as you mentioned a moment ago, theft detection for Philip Morris, counterfeit detection was a pretty interesting one as well. What were some of the key use cases that you focused upon at the time and really how well did the technology which was passive RFID work toward those at the time?
1: Yeah, I think you're touching on the key ones, right? The the out-of-stock availability one sort of a more positive way of looking at it, a counterfeit, big challenge, certainly for Philip Morris, a big one for Gillette back then. It still is, right? I think it's Gillette razor blades are one of the top five most stolen items and counterfeited items if you go on eBay and Google and try to to buy these products. So those use cases, I think, were key drivers. The way we looked at it back then, I think we really did a a nice job of this, was to look at what we were calling within the four walls. So these were use cases that were relevant to Gillette and movement of product from one facility to the other. So work-in-progress type use cases, manufacturing use cases, you know, things within that were within Gillette's control, if you will. And in today's terminology, this is sort of the nodal use cases, right? Um, in, in, the, in in the second category of use cases that we really focused on was around outside of the four walls. And this is more about the network in today's sort of supply chain way of thinking of things. So this is how we would ship to Walmart and, and ensure on time and full delivery. So OTIF, which is now the metric for many, many different industries, is exactly what we were trying to do back then, is to verify that if I'm shipping you 50 pallets, that you are actually getting those 50 pallets. And if, if on those 50 pallets, there was each 10 cases that you actually got all 10 of those cases. So those were some of the key use cases, but it was really within the four walls and, and outside of the four walls that, that was the focus. You know, the promise of the Auto-ID
0: Center ultimately did not really reach critical masses. you said. A lot of things done right, some things perhaps in hindsight not done so well. But was this really a fundamental mismatch of technology, or were we just simply all ahead of our time?
1: Yeah, this is, a, you know, this is one of the- those topics that is close to my heart because, again, we did a lot of good things and we did a lot of things right and some things we really didn't do right. And I I don't think I completely answered your previous question about how did RFID perform, but let's see if we can sort of combine things in here. We were ahead of our time because there was a lot of industry education that needed to be done. So I think the good news was people recognized it and people who were in a position of authority and change and so I think Sanjay did a really great job by taking this whole concept that came out of MIT. In fact, the term together I think in '99 or 2000 by Sanjay and a few other folks at MIT and moved it out of the labs and out of Auto ID Center into this larger entity uh, GS1, right, and called this initiative EPC Global. So I think this was a very smart thing to do because this was not something a set of labs across some number of six or so universities globally was going to be able to do on their own. So we were definitely ahead of our time. There was a lot of, like I said, that like gin and tonic club where we'd go to presentations all over the globe and talk about how this was important and how it would change the world. And that was important to do. But I think the foundational piece of this was That vision was just really, I think, quite well thought through and I think is the basis of where we are able to now today get some of the business benefits we're seeing. So the foundations were really three things, right? It was that unique ID on everything, a common communication language. That was the second thing. And then making sure all this data could be collected and reacted to. So that was, I think, the core of all of it. And it all sort of came together. I think the use cases that were identified were interesting, but like you said, we were a little ahead of our time, and I think the technology was not mature enough. So maybe it was oversold, but this was so foundational and such a breakthrough piece of technology that it, it has now, I think, really enabled things two decades later that we were talking back then.
0: I fully agree. Thank you for reminding us about the origin of the word Internet of Things. There was a gentleman many of you will know by the name of Kevin Ashton at the time, who, along with Sanjay, actually co-founded the Auto ID Center at MIT. And Kevin is the one that is credited with coming up this term Internet of Things. And it really was descriptive of a lot of the core technologies. And you say these uh, kind of common elements RFID. And so for me, as I've always looked at kind of the Internet of Things, I always talk about it as a culmination of telemetry and machine to machine, industrial automation, RFID. You kind of bring all these forward and every one of those kind of waves contributed some elements to it. And ultimately, what we think of as the Internet of Things now and whatever we'll call it in the future, many of you call it simply the singularity or the ubiquitous things, if you will. But all of these are really a combination. The other thing that triggered for me, as you said, is there was a lot of really having kind of raise the tide in terms of teaching our executives about the potential of this technology and how it might impact or disrupt their businesses. And I remember particularly sitting with some of the CXOs at the Philip Morris companies at the time and actually presenting the whole story of RFID all the way down to a book we put together, which had a RFID tag in it. And we even set up demo store of the future, convenience store of the future that really kind of explored what not only the supply chain side of it, but the consumer side of it, too, and how all this came together. And it's so much fun to see elements of this now in retail experiences we have now or technologies and such. So I think you and I were both lucky enough to have been in some sense at a genesis point for much of what we call the IOT now.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. And I'll add two small bits of information that you mentioned, two re- very relevant names, Kevin and Sanjay, but there was a third guy, right? So there was Dr. David Brock, who was also a key part of that whole foundational piece. And so the three of them really were the core of, that came out of MIT. And, and I think Kevin, I know that Kevin was from P&G, and that's where the value he brought to the table. But, you know, talking just a little bit more about success and how big, again, auto-idea, I think is probably a, a misused term in, in some sense, that rain RFID, as it's now called, right, is is uh, used. Is that and the use cases where that are most relevant is, is that I remember the work we did at the Auto ID Center in the early two thousand timeframe with yourself and companies like Walmart and Procter and Gamble and Gillette and the USPS was involved and in, I think some medical use cases. I recall this exercise where we literally documented hundred to one hundred and fifty use cases. These were all put out as white papers at MIT. And the fascinating part, at least in my mind, is if you now look at last year, how many RFID tags were sold? That number is somewhere around 20 billion or 21 billion, something in that range, right? About 75% of those tags were sold into the clothing and retail industry. Mm -hmm. And clothing was barrel, was not one of those 150 use cases that we had talked about 20 years ago. So it really comes down to the market really driving and deciding where the best value is, right? I think that to me has been a big revelation. that in most of these sort of journeys that we're on, it's really important to move, not try and figure everything out up front. And then the market will decide really where the best place is and where the best growth is. So I've been fascinated by, by learning and being part of that journey with you. So. Oh
0: yeah, and in fact, you went on to play executive leadership roles at companies that we talked about earlier, really pioneering product visibility work across the supply chain. So Mojix and Deep Magic, and and mostly recently uh, Tracelink, a company that many of us know well. Let me ask if you had to boil down this time really into three key insights around supply chain visibility,
1: what would those be? So I think the first one that I would articulate is that. I'll mention another person who I recently worked with. Actually, we lost him last year. Just a wonderful, wonderful gentleman, a person called Roddy Martin, who I have a world of respect for. I didn't know him that well. We only met when I joined Tracelink. But just a brilliant thinker and someone who just understood supply chain inside milk. Uh He always talked about starting from outside in. And... It sounded like such a simple concept, and I didn't quite know why he was sort of pushing that as such an important and foundational piece. But the more I talked to him and the more I sort of looked specifically at the pharma industry, you know, the sort of dots started to connect. And, you know, we talked earlier about counterfeit and theft and out of stock and in use cases in retail, right? We were discussing that just a few minutes ago. What's fascinating to me as I've sort of bounced around these different industries the foundational use cases are really the same, right? It doesn't change. And what I learned from Roddy is that, especially in pharma, but again, touches every other industry, right, is you've got to start outside in, as in making sure that when you're talking about pharma, you're talking about the, the consumer, the patient. And you have to start there and understand what the patient's needs are, and then work your way all the way back to not just distribution and, or dispensation, distribution, I'm walking backwards, manufacturer and source, you have to work in that direction rather than from source all the way to the consumer. So I'd I'd say that's uh, insight number one, right? And if you look at sort of any other industry, if you look at food, for instance, at the end of the day, if if we, the consumer, are not able to safe and and appropriately managed and controlled temperature of food, it's the consumer that's impacted. Same thing on automotive, same thing on CPG retail, same thing. And just literally any industry at the end of the day, start with the consumer, start and then work your way back in terms of the business benefits. So that, to me, is probably number one. Number two, in terms of sort of insight on supply chain visibility, I would say that you really want to look at visibility both at the network level and at the node level, right? So I think this is now becoming very prevalent We've seen all the challenges with COVID and the supply chain, and, you know, that's been talked about ad nauseum, so I won't get into all of that. But having this visibility across the node, the, you know, from all points, in the, so having that real-time visibility is where I'm getting at, is really, really important. And leads me probably to my third point, is to enable this real-time visibility. It's all about the network it's all about partnerships it's all about sharing of data and as much as everybody sees data as the new oil and gold and pick your analogy at the end of the day the more we can share that data the more value there is to the end consumer and that's you and i and our families and our kids and our parents and so the more those partnerships and that network effect can be done in working together i think those are sort of the three biggest insights that come to my mind so again work outside in look at the whole network in terms of your four walls and real time visibility within your four walls and through the network and then really it's about partnerships
0: great insights again i feel like i've got two stories for every one answer you provide i remember your ceo at png at the time talking about the moments of truth and you may remember i think he called it the second moment of truth in retail or the first moment of truth i'm sorry And in some sense, that actually inspired the whole industry to think really shelf back or from consumer decision back, right? In there, and certainly ties in well with your outside-in
1: element. That's a great. Sorry, I mean, I love that moment of truth statement. And you talked about, I think, multiple moments of truth, right? There's the first, yes, when you actually see the product and you see it on the shelf, and does it look good? And you know, is it appealing to you? And if that moment of truth is not good then you're never gonna to get to the consumer actually buying it and using it, right? So because that's got to be the next moment of truth where you use it and you really like what you're using. But yeah, PNG very forward thinking in terms of being outside in. And I think that's the same message that Roddy was trying to bring to the pharma industry. So
0: and actually that was the other thing I was going to mention is just another call out at Roddy. It's interesting when supply chain magazine calls Roddy the great connector. And for many of you know, he was really a principal at AMR Research, which is now part of Gartner. But during the time that many of us were doing our nascent work in supply chain, and I remember referring to his 80-page his slide decks, <laughs> <you> know, <laughs> talking about all the different patterns and such. And so, yeah, he was an inspiration to a lot of us during those early career points. Let me ask, how much closer are we to the original Auto-ID promise, and really, what are some of the key technologies that are getting us there versus at least passive RFID at the time?
1: Yeah, I think that that original vision was just, like I said, so forward-thinking, right? I think the stuff that that team at MIT put together, and Sanjay particularly particular, was driving. Every day, I think we get closer to that. You know, this idea of everything having a unique identity, it's grown in leaps and bounds in so many different ways and in so many different industries. Like I said, I'm spending most of my recent time with the last three years, four years after the tracing experience in where I'm doing now is, is mostly focused on pharma and life sciences for, for all the reasons we just mentioned, right? But I think for that's industry which is very old and stodgy and has a lot of rules and, and for all for good reasons, right? The things that are being made are impacting our lives. And even that industry is, I think, really moving in terms of enabling this unique identity. And this most recent challenge with vaccines and has obviously sort of exacerbated and moved these things much faster. So I think it's happening much quicker. I think there's a lot of different technologies on the wireless side, there's some breakthrough things besides RFID, you know which the LP VAN stuff has been bubbling for a number of years and I think is getting some traction again, private versus public too much detail for this conversation. But the one that I'm actually quite intrigued by, and it's again, early days, maybe, <laughs> maybe I just get too excited with the next shiny object, but it's the new BLE technologies that can be done that are battery free. I think that's a game changer because you can now have these very inexpensive tags that don't have a battery source, i.e. they can last for a long, long time, but they also have different sensors on them. So you're enabling a whole bunch of additional use cases over and above what passive RFID was trying to do. And then the beauty is that you don't need fixed infrastructure like you do with RFID and want to clarify that you can do have both mobile and fixed infrastructure with RFID. But the point I'm making about the low power or the power, the battery free is that every phone is essentially a reader. And I think that's been one of the key challenges to why RFID didn't take off as broadly as it was envisioned. So there's a number of interesting technologies that are coming into play that are here now today that are maturing over time. But I think this vision of, again, that unique ID on everything, a common language, again, it may not be one language, but the way that you can collect all that information and canonicalize it, which makes the data then really usable. I think all that is now happening. So... It's taken two decades, technologies have evolved beyond just RFID, and I think that's a wonderful thing. Fully agreed. And
0: it's funny, we've actually dusted off some of those old Auto-ID business cases, which all of you can find (laughs) on the web, to justify investments in more recent companies. NanoThings is an example of a company that's doing passive tags Well, actually using LoRaWAN. And for tracking, Vodafone has rolled out a similar effort in Europe with a Bayer. And so you're absolutely right. You know, medical, cold chain, et cetera, have been real drivers for a lot of this. Let's kind of fast forward. Tell us a bit about VASPAR strategies. How do you work with your clients to accelerate their supply chain solutions?
1: Yeah, you know, I've been very fortunate this recent sort of three, four years, when you get as old as I do, recent as three, four years into the pharma industry has been really energizing for me i mean i've been in supply chain for many years and like i said we've been involved in multiple different industries but i think the value you provide into pharma and the impact it has i I think is so meaningful is to me because i see my mom getting her insulin doses and I have no idea if those have been you know, at the right temperature and if the efficacy is correct or not. And so I've been really learning a lot about this industry and trying to spend most of my time. In fact, most of my customers at this point in time, my clients are in the pharma space. And I've been working in the areas that I can add value. So it goes back to sort of those, that, I think that question you asked earlier about one of those digital threads you called it. So these are companies that have IoT type solutions sanaya as you know was a company that i started and we were building what is now today called partner calls rttvp real-time transport visibility platforms so we were again a little ahead of our time when we were doing that and i think that's become a major play now where people are trying to understand what happens in real time and so i'm trying to focus in on the cold chain pieces there I'm working with some companies that are doing devices and sensors and platforms in that space. You know, a very interesting company there is, is one called Dive, I'm doing some work with. There's, there's a few others. And the other place I'm really spending a lot of time in the pharma space, again on cold chain, is around cold chain packaging and really seeing how you can add additional visibility to these packaging devices so that you can make sure that when product comes to my home for my mother, that it's really in temperature and has done the right things. So these are interesting clients. There's a lot of sort of recognition by this industry, by the farm industry, that there needs to be much more visibility and handoffs need to be managed much better. So I see some great potential here. And the great news is I I feel like adding value in the space that's important. so.
0: So you've been several decades in the supply chain visibility space now. Let me ask you to put your prognosticator hat on for a moment. What would you predict for the next five years relative to supply
1: chain visibility? Yeah, maybe I'm not such a good procrastinator. <laughs> I think the pieces that are really important was to make sure that the supply chain visibility really becomes real-time. I think that's the most important piece. There seems to be traction on that in the food and perishable industry today. You know, So when strawberries are picked and meats are shipped and when seafood is, is shipped, that one seems to be obvious. But those, again, I think have tend to have sort of a visual response also. So you can look at food and you can smell it. You can tell if it's gone bad. That's the space where there seems to be the real-time visibility pieces moving. Again, I think over the next five years, pharma and life sciences with clinical trials, with personalized medicine, with biologics, with vaccines, something like 50% of all vaccines today are wasted. Again, these are general numbers across the board. Something like 35 billion in annual losses in the pharma because of poorly temperature monitored products. So, I'm not pushing pharma because I'm interested in that space. I really believe that there's big impact here and big potential here, and this is where I see a lot of very interesting things happening. I'm really intrigued by the smart packaging concepts that can that are sort of happening within pharma. But because you know we're moving more and more to these personalized medicines. And I think Big Pharma is, is recognizing that there's opportunity there. There's, I think there's good potential for this real time visibility to happen in a meaningful way in that space.
0: So, in closing, I always like to ask a question in terms of one's personal inspiration. What do you use to personally inspire yourself, I guess
1: is a proper way to say it? Oh, goodness. So many things. I'm a softy at heart. My kids inspire me. Just seeing sort of. How digital their lives have become, and how they're handling all of that, and and where they're they're taking their careers, and just seeing what they're doing is phenomenally inspiring. I think I really like LinkedIn as a resource, and not a big social media guy, but I think LinkedIn really follows some folks on there, and I really get some good inspiration there. It's with conversations with people like you and sanjay and people who are in a position to make a difference like you guys are but then also i get inspired by friends and colleagues you know there's this guy called christian sarkar who i've known from high school and this guy is brilliant and, and tons of money doing consulting and doing all sorts of stuff but he, he's passionate about sustainability and, and changing the world and so that's what he does and he doesn't make a lot of money but he's really focused on doing the right thing so and you remember mirmoid From our days. Oh, I Uh, do, as a matter of fact. Yes. Yeah. He's another one who just really inspires me, right? Just brilliant, Mm -hmm. down to earth, and just wants to do the right thing. So it comes from many places. And I see that there's lots of potential and a lot of good. And by the way, if you, I'm sure you have, but if you haven't, or some of your listeners have not heard Sir David Attenborough's speech, it's about seven minutes long at the COP26 a few days ago. It is so inspirational, Ken. It's really a wonderful, wonderful speech. So I would suggest that your listeners go listen to that if they haven't.
0: Perfect. Well, we'll provide a link to that together with the transcription when we uh, we publish this. So Jamshed, thank you for sharing this time and these insights with us today. Entirely my pleasure, Ken. It was so much fun. Thank you. So this has been Jamshed Dubash, CEO of VASPAR Strategies and a pioneer in supply chain visibility. Thank you for listening, and please join us next week for the next episode of our Digital Thread podcast series. Thank you, and have a great day. You've been listening to the Momented Digital Thread podcast series. We hope you've enjoyed the discussion, and as always, we welcome your comments and suggestions. Please check our website at Momented.1 for archive versions of podcasts, as well as resources to help with your digital industry journey. Thank you for listening.